Uh, if you missed April's message last week, I would recommend going back and listening to it. Um, but after hearing her message, I scrapped what I had written for this opener um, and started completely over. And kind of here's why. Uh, when Dad called me and came up with this idea for the month of uh, October, he started asking me and apparently April what was burning on our hearts. Uh, he asked us what God had been speaking, is, speaking to us and what he had been challenging us with. And even though April and I have not spoken to one another at all through this process uh, about what we would be preaching on, we were both drawn to the story in 1 Samuel kind of separately. And you don't have to knock me on the head uh, more than once to know that God's doing something. So we're going to jump into 1 Samuel this morning. So I had sat here last week feeling like God was using April's message to speak directly into my life uh, because, of, por- of course, that perfectly resonated with what God had been putting on my heart for several years. Uh, I decided just to basically share a little bit of what's been going on in Isabel and I's life, which has actually been motivating a lot of the decisions we've been making over the past year uh, to dive in deeper here at Open Table and even make some pretty major changes in the way we're raising our kids at home. Let me start with that this has been a huge struggle for me, uh, and I've avoided this moment uh, for years, including at our last church. Uh, At our last church, I led worship for the youth group for several years, uh, and the pastor there would ask me regularly to lead a a small group, and I would constantly tell him no. For years and years, I told him no. Not because I didn't love the kids or want to have a solid relationship with them, but because I feel the weight of responsibility that comes with sharing what I feel like God has spoken to me. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to be responsible for messing some kid's faith up. So I have repeatedly refused the invitation to preach or teach or speak out in any way until this one. When my dad asked me to speak this month, I told him that Isabel and I are currently in a season of what I'm calling nervous obedience. Uh, We're just trying to do whatever God's asking us to do. Uh, Oftentimes we don't feel ready or qualified, um, but this is part of that, I think. Plus, my mom told me that I had to, and you don't tell my mom no when she tells you to do something. (laughs) So we're going to get started this morning with a bit of a generational joke. Uh, I heard this my whole life growing up from my dad. I believe he heard it from his dad, and for all I know, my great-grandpa might have told it to him. So anyways, a young man is walking down the street, and someone stops him and says, Hey, you're a jackass. An old man sitting nearby overhears and tells the young man, Eh, ignore him. Don't even think about it. That's just their opinion. A few moments later, a second person does the exact same thing. Hey, you're a jackass. The old man overhearing again says, well, if two people are calling you a jackass, you probably ought to start thinking about it. At that very moment, a third person walks by uh, and calls the young man a jackass for a third time. The old man looks at the young man and says, it's time for you to buy a saddle. (laughs) So this morning, I'm buying a saddle. In 2019, in 2019, I was leading worship at a band, and the band was having some issues. Uh, and even though I was not in leadership and really had no authority in the direction of the band, almost everyone in the band, from people significantly long, younger to significantly older than me, were turning to me to kind of speak into the situation. And I was trying to explain how frustrating that was to Dad. And uh, he said to me, son, I think God has given you the gift of prophecy. Now, I'll spare you what I actually told him because this is church. But uh, suffice it to say, I was not happy with his assessment. Now, before anyone freaks out, we're not going to dig into the gift of prophecy this morning because that means different things to different people, uh, kind of depending on your theology. But for our purpose this morning, let's just say that the gift of prophecy is when God gives you the ability to see patterns 
and that makes it easy to see what's happening or what is likely to happen next in a situation. And with knowing that comes the ability to, the ability to, or at least desire to speak into that situation uh, and hopefully into someone's life. But here's the deal. I don't know if you've read about the Old Testament prophets, but speaking out is usually doesn't go well for them. Most, most of the time, the prophets live lonely lives because people don't like being told when they aren't doing things God, God's way, and that will likely turn out poorly for them. So to be honest, I ignored my dad and instead chose to just assume the band issues were an anomaly. A few months later, I was doing some work for an old friend's husband, and out of nowhere, as we were talking about all the hype over this new virus that had been in the news the past couple of days, this was the beginning of 2020, he looks at me, and just like we're talking about the weather, goes, I think God has given you a word of prophecy of the struggles to come. And I can hear that old joke at the beginning. And I'm going, well, maybe I ought to think about it. And suddenly that silly joke didn't sound so silly. I begin to wonder if God is talking to me. I also wish my dad would keep his stupid jokes to himself. (laughs) Well, a little later in 2020, I'm lamenting to Bryce, who's one of my longest time friends, about all the stuff in 2020 that had gone almost exactly the way I told that guy at the beginning of the year things would go. And I was also sharing with him a lot of what God was laying on my heart, which incidentally turns out to be what we're going to talk about this morning. And I slip into how my dad and this other guy, who have very different theologies from each other and different definitions for what a prophet even is, both chose the exact same word to talk about what God was doing in my life. And my lifelong buddy says, oh yeah, you definitely have the gift of prophecy. How could you not know that? He goes on to remind me all kinds of things that God had spoken to me and groups and movement that I had started from basically middle school on, which I... Uh, because I feel like God was telling me uh, that this was the best way to reach out to certain people. I know Dad has talked about our fight club in here before and how crazy of a concept that was, but in my memory, that's mostly just a really fun time of when we fought a lot, learned some mixed martial arts, and mostly I busted my hands up real bad. But on the phone, Bryce was reminding me that the whole thing started because I was consumed with the idea of speaking the Word of God into the lives of friends who were growing up on a bad path. And I wasn't really trying to save their souls like an evangelist. I just wanted to speak some good news into them and warn them that the paths they were on were dangerous and could eventually destroy them. We were trying to call these guys who had drug problems, major anger issues, or were growing up without dads. And hopefully in some way connecting them all to guys who were just trying to follow Jesus and connecting them to the Father who had a better plan and purpose for their life. So I hung up the phone and contemplated three different men looking into my life from three completely different perspectives and all coming away with the same assumption that these crazy ideas I have, these burdens and passions that I feel, don't actually come from me, but are instead God speaking to me, which I have to be honest, terrifies me. I tend to get uncomfortable when people say God told me this or God spoke to me that. So hearing three people I trust all say, dude, that's God talking to you. Well, that was not something I was ready to hear. But I called Dad back and I said, okay, let's pretend for a second that God has given me a message, a prophecy if you want to be really creepy and biblical about it. (laughs) What do I do next? He answers, well, you're eventually going to have to share it. And this morning is basically the culmination of three years of me telling my dad he's crazy. 
It's actually the culmination of three years of prayer, meditation, and now some actual Bible study. And in a nutshell, I believe God has given me a message to call his people's hearts back to him. Last week, April walked us through the process of Saul becoming king. This morning, let's back up just a little bit to right before that story took place. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abiha, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel read at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army, and some will be forced to plow in the fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it amongst his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they say. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. And welcome to American politics. Except... How many of you listened to that and thought, man, my paycheck would love if the king only took 10% in taxes? How many of us are worrying that the king might send our sons to Ukraine? How many of us have wrestled with the fact that the only way to make it anymore is both our sons-in-laws and our daughters work? Samuel warned that the king would take your best fields. Does that sound like eminent domain? On a show of hands, how many people over the last four or eight years or so, can feel the tension and discontent rising in our country. Yeah. I'm not old enough to know what it was like in the 60s, but in my 30 years, this feels like things are unraveling. And I know I'm not alone because a recent Gallup poll says 79% of the country is unhappy with the way things are going in the United States right now. Which means if you were hanging out with 10 people, only two of you are even remotely happy with the way things are going, and we all know what those two people are like. (laughs) And have you noticed how more and more of us don't really vote for a candidate? We simply vote against the other guy? Samuel warned Israel, there will come a day when you will beg to be released from the very guy you're voting for today, but God will not help you. 
No matter how we look at it, we are living in a kingdom that looks just like the kingdom Saul warned the Israelites to stay away from. We live in a kingdom with the wrong king. And the worst part is, every four years, many of us in the church, just like Israel, line up and say, we want a king like all the other nations. Only maybe in our modern language it sounds more like, we want a candidate like the other parties, or we want a candidate like the other worldviews. We want a candidate like the other ideologies. We want a king like all the other nations. The church faces the same temptation the people of God have been fighting over since the days of Samuel. Now, some of you are probably thinking, it's only this bad because the last guy messed everything up. Or maybe you're thinking, things are only this bad because the current guy is a walking skeleton. But here's the thing to remember. When Israel asked for a king because they no longer wanted God to be their king, Samuel didn't say, if you choose the wrong guy, these awful things will happen. He didn't say, if you elect the wrong party, you can expect all these terrible consequences. Samuel didn't say anything to the people about what kind of platform to look for when voting for a king, or whether a small government free market system was better, or a tax and spend government might offer a more level playing field. He simply told them what to expect. Personally, I think Samuel, with his prophet's gift, recognized that the types of people who would ask for a king just so they would be like the surrounding nations weren't likely to elect the kind of king who would lead the nation in God's way. Which is interesting because the Bible actually tells them exactly what kind of person to choose to be king. Deuteronomy 17 reads, You are about to enter the land the Lord your God has given you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think, We should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as a king the man your Lord a God has chosen. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take, himself, must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. He must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. That sound like Washington? In the ancient Middle East, horses were only used for military purposes. Farmers used oxen and donkeys. Long travelers used camels. Horses were generally associated with chariots, and they were used in warfare. And basically against normal foot armies, horses and chariots would have been like tanks and stealth bombers. So this recommended king, according to Moses, is not supposed to gather a large military. He is not supposed to be about women. He is not supposed to amass great wealth. He, and he is supposed to study the Bible. That totally sounds like everybody in Washington, right? If you take power, wealth, and sex, if you take out power, wealth, and sex, why even go to Washington? I'm pretty sure that is basically what our ruling class is looking for. 
Our whole empire, not just politically, but culturally, is propped up by the pursuit of sex, power, money, and might. So having leaders who would do the same doesn't seem that weird. And really, for us Christians, the only thing that truly makes American politics uncomfortable is that our Bible tells us that, we, that if we want a king, he should be a humble king, who, the, who has the Lord first in his mind and in his heart, one who does not consider himself to be better than his fellow man, And if you can find that in Washington, I am all ears. Believe me, I'm as hungry for good leadership in this country as the next guy, and I'm just as likely to compare one candidate against the other and get myself all pumped up about who who is the better of the two options. But Moses didn't tell Israel to choose the lesser of two evils. He said, on election day, make sure your king looks like this. This is the standard you compare a candidate to, not his even more awful opponent. And if hearing Moses tell us what our candidates should be like makes you feel like we're doomed because no man could live up to that standard, then the next passage from Isaiah is for you. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of all their slaves, and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders." You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the armies of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord, the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Israel begged for a king and they got one, and he was tall and kingly and powerful. And April told us how that went last week. Saul was replaced by David because, as the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David did better, but as good as he was, his strength was upheld by a mighty military, and he had a harem and great wealth. And his son prayed for wisdom and understanding, and seemed like he was off to a great start, but he fell in the same traps of leadership as his father. And I feel like our election cycles now are no different. We get our hopes up and rally to a platform, promises, and we put all our optimism in leaders who aren't Deuteronomy leaders. Because how on earth could you run a country with no military or no great wealth, no sexual motivation and manipulation to drive culture? That's a joke. It would take a miracle from God. Which I think is what Isaiah is promising here. Isaiah is telling the people of God that the king they are waiting for, the king they wanted way back in 1 Samuel, they just didn't realize it, the king that will be able to rule over them and lead them without taking without all the horrible consequences that Samuel warned them about, is Jesus. Which means that the king that we, the people of God today, are supposed to follow is Jesus. 
And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm making too big a deal out of this. Maybe the leaders we rally around and celebrate and get all worked up over doesn't really have that big of an impact on things. Except here's a really difficult prophecy also in Isaiah, and it takes special notes in the role that leaders play. In Isaiah 9, after the prophet calls down some judgment on God's people and they still refuse to repent, Isaiah says this, They will not seek the Lord of heaven's armies. Therefore, in a single day, the Lord will destroy both the head and the tail, the noble palm branch and the lowly reed. The leaders of Israel are the head and the lying prophets are the tail. For the leaders of the people have misled them. They have led them down a path of destruction. And after calling down some more judgment, Isaiah prophesies them this telling statement. The people will be fuel for the fire and no one will spare even his own brother. They will attack their neighbors on the right, but still be hungry. They will devour their neighbors on the left, but will not be satisfied. And in the end, they will even eat their own children. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim. Ephraim will feed on Manasseh, and both will devour Judah. But even then, the Lord's anger will not be satisfied. His fist is still poised to strike. I have personally watched this prophecy come true over the past two election cycles. I've watched brother devour brother. I've seen those on the right destroy their neighbors on the left, and those on the left trash those on the right. And I've seen families relationally eat their own children. In fact, I feel like you can't even get on the Internet now without seeing an ideological war being waged with our children being used as pawns. And right in the middle of it all, every parent in this country, regardless of political views, is raising their children amidst fear about what this country will be when they hand it over to the next generation. We're being led astray. And Isaiah called it. Because you followed your wicked leaders, this is what it will look like, and we're living it out every day. So the question is, what do we, as we come upon another election cycle, what do we do? As a 30-year-old construction worker, I don't pretend to know exactly what all this means in 2024, but I do know this. Moses told us what our king should look like. Samuel warned us what it would be like if we choose a king other than God. And Isaiah came and told us not, not only what life would be like if we followed wicked leaders, but he also told us that a leader would come who is not only a king like Moses suggested, but he's Emmanuel, God with us. And as far as I can see, there is no other name in heaven or on earth that offers the type of leader, that offers to be the type of leader Moses suggested. The God ruled that Samuel suggested and the bringer of peace that Isaiah promised. So how do we respond to this? The church in America sits in a weird place because from day one, America has had a particular government structure. And from what I can tell, it's probably the best secular form of government on offer. But as believers in America, those that are called to be in the world, but not of the world, I fear that we sit in the same place Israel sat back in 1 Samuel. We know we have a king. We know he is the king. But everyone else is, trying to, is out here fighting over candidates. And we want so badly to have a king like everyone else. We want our candidate. God give, God give us a king like all the surrounding nations. But as a follower of Jesus and a child of God, we are called to pledge our allegiance to him. And to follow him. To trust in him as provider, protector, and bringer of peace. I think that American politics has become the king we were never supposed to have. And I fear that it has led us astray from the will of God. And the longer we follow, the more it breeds chaos and division 
And worse yet, we destroy in the name of God. We'll ask, well, what about abortion? Doesn't that break God's heart? Doesn't ending abortion justify the use of political power to make, to make people do the will of God? Or what about compassion and social justice? Shouldn't we use political force to defend the defenseless? When Peter promised to defend Jesus or die with him, Jesus does not applaud Peter's passion. He doesn't say, hey, you're in a tough spot. They only gave you two bad options, and what are you going to do about it? Jesus doesn't even tell Peter, no worries, Peter, I got this. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. And when Peter basically ignores that and pulls his sword to defend Jesus, Jesus has to pause what he's doing, what he came to earth to do, and he has to first clean up Peter's mess. Jesus does not need you and I to use a weapon to defend him. I believe that politics is no longer a tool to make the world a better place, but an idol there to lure our trust and faith away from God. The message that I feel like God has put on my heart feels to me like it has the weight of watching the Israelites gather around the golden calf that Aaron made. Moses had been gone a long time and everyone had grown impatient. People don't want to do things the way Moses had, taught, had told them to do things. I mean, this is the real world here. Yes, we have just been miraculously delivered and yes, God has been faithful, but come on, you can't serve a leader who isn't there. God, give us an idol. And don't we all struggle with the same fear and impatience? Doing things God's way is so slow. Taking care of my family and raising my kids right isn't nearly enough impact for the mess we're in. Trusting God to change one heart at a time and thereby change our nation from the inside out, well, that would take a move of God. Just give us an idol. And I don't say any of this like it's easy for me. I tend to feel fear and panic every time I'm even a little slow at work. What if God doesn't come through this time? He's always provided for us, but what if this time he doesn't? So believe me, I understand the Israelites' desire to have a God they could see and who couldn't slip away and make them wonder if they had dreamed the whole thing. But Moses does come back, and his fury is brutal, and God's fury is even more brutal. And thousands of years later, we look at the problems facing us, and because of fear and impatience, we don't turn to God in faith trusting that he will provide and protect us as we live in a world full of sin. But instead we say, Aaron, give us a ballot box. And we, and we all yell at our families on Thanksgiving because, darn it, I'm right and you're wrong. We leave churches over politics, forgetting we're supposed to be serving the same master. And we drive our enemies away instead of loving them the way Jesus commanded us to. And honestly, I believe that the... And I honestly believe that the cure is not becoming Amish or abandoning all social discourse. I don't think we form a new Christian party, and I don't think we embrace a wishy-washy compromise so we can all get along. I feel like God has called me to call his people's hearts back to him. And here's what I mean by that. Way back in 1 Samuel, when the people first asked Samuel to anoint a king, Samuel goes to God and is like, can you believe these people? Samuel is in shock, but God is not in shock. Listen to what God says. Do everything they say to you, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. God wasn't shocked because the people's hearts had been far away from him for a long time. He basically tells Samuel, 
dude, they quit following me a long time ago. This king thing is just a symptom. And I fear our love and commitment to politics, especially in the church, is a symptom. I fear it's a symptom that we don't trust and fear that God is able to save us. So the way I would love to respond to this, to this message is with one more passage. I know I've thrown a lot of scripture at you this morning, but I feel like we need one more. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is this right to pay, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil motives, you hypocrites, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. The religious leaders aren't asking, Jesus, aren't asking Jesus a question about taxes. They're asking him a question about identity. They are asking him if the people of God, God's chosen, God's special possession, should have to pay taxes to a power usurping secular state like Rome. And Jesus' answer is also about identity. But the identity that Jesus invokes is a little deeper. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus says that coin bears an image. Give it back to the one whose image it bears. But the principle goes much further because you and I bear an image. And Jesus said that we need to give it to the one whose image it bears. I believe this plays out two ways, and this is how I'd love to respond this morning. One, you bear God's image. Give your heart to God, not to politics, not to Caesar, not to a king or candidate, no matter who gets elected ever. They are not the king from Deuteronomy, and your king and kingdom will be fine either way. So if your heart, your fear, your anxiety is all tied up in politics, get free. Cry out to be set free. Grind up the golden calf and run back to God in repentance. And second... The second way to respond to this is to remember that every other human being is also an image bearer of God. And if you allow something as ridiculous as a choice between two bad rulers to cause you to do damage to one who bears God's image, stop. Follow Jesus' word and please recognize that it is Caesar's and to give to what is Caesar's to Caesar and what is God to God and run back to God in repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, call our hearts to you. Let us give our fears for the future to you. Let us give our hate for those we don't agree with and our pain and bitterness for those who hate us to you. God, let us bear your image in this broken world and follow after your heart. Let us bring your peace into the chaos of this world and help us to follow you and bear your light into the world. Let us be the reason relationships are healed and not broken in this coming season and lead us away from the temptation to hate and divide. Remind us that you are our source, our protector and provider, and you always have been and always will be. Amen.